your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 15. We're going to get in the Word this morning. Gospel of Mark chapter 15. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, not a problem, just slip up your hand and we will get a Bible to you. You're going to need that text in front of you, whether it's digital or printed. But go ahead and open with us to the 15th chapter of Mark's Gospel. If you're newer to our community, we've spent the last, I don't know, about 14 months in Mark's gospel, and it has been an awesome journey. We only have, after this Sunday, three more Sundays in the gospel of Mark, which, I don't know about you, makes me sad. Maybe you're sick of hearing about Mark's gospel, but I'm going to be sad to leave it. Uh, But all of it has really led to the next two Sundays. The next two Sundays are the passages of the crucifixion of Christ. This is the climax of the gospel story, and to be frank with you, this is the climax of human history, is when Christ laid down his life for the world. And so that's what we're going to get into. We're going to get into some deep mysteries and some hallowed ground uh, this morning. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in these opening verses. We're uh, chapter 15, picking up in verse 16. And it reads this. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. Let's stop there. So you remember from last week, this is the moment that Jesus has been pulled off the pole that he was chained to as he was being whipped. Flogging was done as a preparation for crucifixion. The idea was that if you injured this person so badly by the flogging, you would then shorten their lifespan on the cross. Jesus has just endured that And now, at this point, he would have open wounds. He would have gashes all over his body with lots of blood. And now he's been led back to the governor's headquarters with this um, group of soldiers. And he's there in some kind of prison and holding cell. Verse 16 says that they were led away. Now, they were led to the governor's headquarters. Here's what you need to know. This is where the most elite soldiers were stationed because they were personal guards to Pontius Pilate. And what we read right there in the text is that these men, these elite soldiers, begin to mock and begin to abuse Jesus. If you look at verse 17, they start by putting a purple robe on him. Purple was the color of royalty in ancient times. You wouldn't just walk around with a purple jacket on. Uh, Purple was the most expensive dye that you could buy, and typically only kings and queens were seen wearing it. All this is mockery. Next, the soldiers weave together a crown of painful thorns. I don't know about you. I remember doing some yard work maybe six months ago and caught a thorn and had to pull it out, and it was painful. I can't imagine that piercing the crown of your head. The crown was normally not made of thorns, but it was made of gold leaf, 
And it was used celebrating either a conquering king or a victorious athlete in the Olympics. But that's not what they put on Jesus. In verse 18, it says that they give this salute, this, this mocking parody. And it's the same salute that they would give Caesar. They would say, Hail, Caesar, Emperor. And here they mock him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And in the following verses, they start to abuse Jesus. It says they would strike him and they would spit on him. When you really take time to read and enter into this passage, it truly can be hard to watch if you imagine what's taking place. Moving along in the storyline, verse 20 reads this. It says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. To crucify him. All of these painful events that are transpiring here are just as Jesus said they would be. Do you remember, I don't know how many Sundays ago it was, but in the text, in the story, five days earlier, Jesus told his disciples verbatim all that would happen to him. I think we have it on the screen. It's Mark 10. So five days earlier, he says this. He pulls his disciples aside. Imagine the scene. And he predicts to a T what's going to take place. It says, in taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. That happened. That was the Sanhedrin. And the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's Pontius Pilate. That's the Romans. And then look at the detail. And they will mock him. And they will spit on him. And flog him. And kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The point being here is this. Although Jesus is under immense suffering, he is in control. He is the Son of God who can at any moment call down from heaven angels to dispel these violent soldiers. At any moment. The point is this. They are not taking his life. Rather, as Jesus said earlier in Mark 10.45, his words, not mine. He is giving up his life as a ransom for many. He did not have to go to Jerusalem. He went on a mission knowing that he was to go and to lay down his life even in the midst of these violent, mocking men. In Jesus' mind, to let you into his, his attitude, what he's thinking is taking place right now, Isaiah 53, he read it often, that 800-year-old prophecy, the suffering servant, in Jesus' mind when he's being spit on, and I don't know about you, but you spit on me. I want to retaliate immediately. In his mind, he's playing the last lamb that is to be sacrificed to cleanse the world of all its sin and to end all sacrifices. He is not a victim. He's on a mission here. Again, it reads in verse 20 at the end, it says, They led him out to crucify him. 
There is no understating how torturous the cross was for Jesus. Simply from a physical standpoint, much less the spiritual and psychological hell he endures, taking on all the sin of the world and being under God's judgment. We'll never know that kind of psychological hell. We just won't. The physical battle, we can at least speak to practically from a safe distance, what we know from history, and it's well documented. A Roman execution squad consisted of four soldiers. They were overseen by a centurion. That's a commanding officer of 100 soldiers. We'll meet him next Sunday, the centurion. He has a very important role in all of this. But these five men, commanding officer and four uh, soldiers under him, are now leading Jesus out of the city to be crucified. Crucifixion was such a horrifying practice. I think because it's become such a religious symbol that we wear, which is great, no problem, that's, that, that, that's good. We forget that in Jesus' time to wear a jewelry of a crucifix would have been madness. This was a political, torturous symbol way before it was a religious, devotional symbol. Cicero, a writer of the time, calls it the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. Josephus, a historian of the time, refers to it as the most miserable of deaths. Death by crucifixion resulted from either bleeding out, from exposure to the elements, from just sheer exhaustion, or from a medical term called asphyxiation, which has to do with losing your breath and in, in your lungs and, and, and essentially drowning. The person would push up from the cross to get their breath by pushing off the nails that were driven into his feet just to breathe and stay alive. Now, I know some of this is not easy to hear, but it's worth hearing. When you would push up, this would lengthen the time of torture for whoever was on the cross. Some could linger on the cross for days in and out of consciousness, and they would become prey for birds and for wild dogs. This was a vicious practice. Seneca, a famous Roman philosopher of Jesus' time, he, he would have been a contemporary of Jesus, born around the same year. He writes on crucifixion. He says this, Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop, rather than expiring once for all? So this is a very small five-minute understanding of Jesus' cross. Where are we in the text? Let me give you a time stamp. It's now close to nine in the morning. This would have been April in 33 AD, roughly, in Israel. Nine in the morning. Jesus is now carrying his own cross out of the city, those five soldiers around him, to the hill where they executed men and women. But the reality is Jesus has gone through so many beatings, so many open wounds, that he's physically very frail. 
And so it's hard for him to carry this wooden cross up this hill. And so they grab a man to help him. Take a look in the text. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerbyer named Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Who is this man, Simon of Cyrene? Well, history tells us he's a North African man. And what's interesting is typically you were referred to under your father's name. So John, the son of Jerry, right? That'd be kind of interesting if we still did that. His real name is Gerald. John, the son of Gerald. I might start using that, actually. Sound more important. But here, if you didn't notice, it's reversed. He's not referred to by his father, but he's referred to by the two sons that he has, Alexander and Rufus. Why? Well, at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, this is chapter 16, verse 13, Paul sends greeting to a man named Rufus. And Rufus was a very rare, rare name during that time. It's believed that this Rufus was now a converted Christian in the Roman church and happened to be the very son of Simon who helped Jesus carry the cross. Meaning that Simon, in this moment, this North African man with this bloodied, whipped man who claims to be Messiah, helping him up this hill to Golgotha. He was so deeply impacted by this event, by Jesus' death, and by his later resurrection that Simon came to believe and later led his sons to the Lord. Isn't that an amazing story right there in the middle of a very dark and troubling story? The account goes on. Verse 23. And they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Wine mixed with myrrh was a narcotic that they would sometimes give people that were being crucified. Here it says in the text, Jesus refused it. Remember Jesus' words earlier that uh, the night before, Passover meal. This is Mark 14. He says when they're having Passover meal, he ends it by saying that he will, I'm quoting Jesus, he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus does not want a narcotic here. He wants to be fully conscious as he renders this final act of obedience and sacrifice. Verse 24 says that they stripped Jesus of his clothes. Most crucified people were hung on the cross naked and exposed. It's possible that they left Jesus with, with a loincloth to appease Jewish sensibilities that have been very, very against their culture. We don't know. Either way, Jesus in this moment is suffering immensely. And then verse 25 reads this. And it was the third hour 
when they crucified him. That's nine in the morning. Okay? Now watch what happens. The next passage that we'll get into next Sunday shows us that darkness came over the Jerusalem landscape while Jesus hung on the cross starting at noon. So he's initially nailed to the cross and put upright at nine in the morning. He suffers for three hours. And you'll see next week at noon, this eerie darkness, these storm clouds or whatever it might have been, came over the entire Jerusalem landscape. And he hung there in this eerie darkness for three hours. And then Jesus cries out and he gives his life as a ransom for many. But we'll get more into that next week. Here, Jesus hangs and he suffers, and then once again, he's mocked. Take a look. Verse 26. So again, nine in the morning, hanging on the cross. And then it reads this, verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Let's pause there. Can you imagine this scene and can you imagine the audacity of these people? That while Jesus is suffering, they hurl taunts at him. One of them brings back the rumor that Jesus was going to destroy the Jerusalem temple. Remember this? That he was destroyed the temple. They're saying, if you really have the power to destroy the temple, then save yourself and come down from that cross. But there's a sacred irony here. And it's this. By staying on the cross, not coming off of it, Jesus will, in fact, destroy the temple. By staying on the cross, he will be the final sacrifice for sin, ending the purpose of the temple. You see this? There's going to be more. There's a second mocking. You see another sacred irony. Pick up in verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked Jesus to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. These leaders are saying that the true Christ isn't supposed to die at the hands of the Romans. He's supposed to conquer them. They're saying, if you really are the Christ, then come down off that cross to quote them, and then we'll believe you. Now, they weren't wrong in the fact that Christ was supposed to save his people. Yet, here's the irony. That's exactly what Jesus is doing by staying on the cross. He is saving all people. By staying on the cross, he is bringing a salvation far 
from far greater human enemies than the Romans. But he's bringing a salvation from Satan and from sin and from death. These are enemies that parade every human person everywhere. It's not just for the Jewish people, but it's a salvation for all people. Jesus is exactly fulfilling the role of Messiah by staying on the cross. They taught him with another line saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. We're going to spend the rest of our time on this one mocking line. He saved others. He cannot save himself. This is where we speak up. This is where they really speak our language, the language of our world. They assume that salvation of self is the greatest good. Save yourself. Get down off that cross. Then we'll believe you. They assume that salvation of self is the greatest goods and is the greatest good. In their minds, everyone should try and save themselves, assert themselves, fulfill themselves. The surest vindication for for Jesus would be his ability to save himself from this self-sacrifice in their minds and in ours, in the world's mind. This is how we think. This is where it comes home. This is how we think. But Jesus has not taken up the world's mission of self-help and self-fulfillment. Rather, self-sacrifice and service to others. It's so clear on the cross. As he says in Mark 10, 45, he's come to give his life. Not keep it, not save it, not fulfill it. To give his life as a ransom for many. We're entering a deep mystery here. At the cross, we see in no uncertain terms the extreme contrast between the way of God and the way of man. The way of God and the way of man. God serves. God sacrifices. You will not get a clearer picture of what the mysterious Almighty is truly like than when you look at the cross of Christ. You have a weird image of God. We all do, by the way. You have to grow out of it. You have to align it with Scripture and with the Holy Spirit. You have an image of God that is not found in the person of Christ and in the body of Scripture. All of us do, whether it's something we inherited from our father or our mother, something we inherited from just incomplete teaching or bad teaching. We all have an image of God that doesn't fully represent who the Almighty is. And one of the greatest ways to cure that is to stare at the cross. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I love when my kids ask me, where's God? Why can't we see him? Right? And you have to talk them through the Trinity, which is never easy. Jesus, look at the language. It's short, but man, it's to the point. 
Jesus is the image. You want to know what God's like? Here's the image. He's imaging the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. This isn't a father versus son thing here on the cross. It says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. When you see Christ, you see God. And what do we see when we look at God in Christ on the cross? We see this in no uncertain terms. God is a serving God. Look at Jesus. You know, you get around those people that just seem so kind and so generous and so serving. They just continue to put others in front of themselves. And you think to yourself, man, I'm a selfish son of a gun. Happens to me a lot. God is no comparison for the most unselfish person you know. He is selfless, giving, generous at an infinite level. God is constantly serving our world with his love and power. Let me tell you this. God doesn't run the universe with an attitude of self-fulfillment. We can often have a weird picture of God that doesn't line up with the cross that says God is just running this world for himself. We get a, we get a non-biblical picture of what it means for God to do things for his glory. And we often just project on, our, on God our own sin and see God as someone who's just out for himself. You cannot look at the cross and believe that that is true. You see a God who is pouring out himself for the world that he loves. He's not like the Greek gods of old. And he is certainly not like the human celebrity gods of today. He is the hanging God. He is the crucified God. The self-sacrificial and serving God. He, in the words of the Apostle John, is love. Pouring out himself completely in love and blood on the tree. He gives all of himself to the world at the cross. As we've said over and over the past few weeks, this is the God we pray to. When you turn to him in your car and you're heading to a difficult situation, or when you suffer loss, or when you're just going to bed at night and you want to thank the Lord for the day, when you utter those three letters, G-O-D, this is the infinite one that draws near. A God of unfathomable generosity, service, truth, justice, and love. This is the one we believe in. Some folks were tempted in today's culture, you know, we're, you can sometimes be embarrassed that we're Christians and feel like Christianity is this outdated religion or whatever. Christianity is the wildest thing on the human stage. There's no greater gospel or story or philosophy you'll ever find. This believes in a God that the Greeks and the priests and the philosophers could never make up. When you get deep into the gospel story and the crucifixion of Christ, you find yourself saying, I am so proud and grateful to be a Christian. It's the greatest thing in the world. Why? Because God made it, not man. 
This is not only the God that we believe in, this is the God that calls his children to be the same way. To serve as he has served. To sacrifice as he has sacrificed. To pour out your life into things that truly matter as God has done in Christ. A lot of times when we say serving, we think just, we think real one-dimensional, interpersonally. You know, like, oh, you know, I don't know, uh, Joe. Joe's just really kind. He, he's just a real servant. And, and we think of that because he's just good in the moment at putting people in front of himself. And maybe, I don't know, he's the first to, like, clean the dishes at the table or, or, or whatever, first to give you help. That, that's good. That, that's right. That's Christ-like. But that's a one-dimensional view of service. Service is pouring your life into your work, your job. It's pouring your life into your children. It's pouring your life into books to become a wise man or woman who can live righteously and help others and be a witness to Christ. Serving has many dimensions. Too often we only talk about one dimension in the church and we act like, oh, you got to have a certain personality type to really be a servant. No, I'll tell you right now, my personality type, it ain't servant. And I constantly, by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, have to lay down my personality to be a servant, not just with a person, but in my work and in the passions God's called me to live. I want to take you back to Scripture. I want to take you to Jesus' direct words in the 10th chapter of Mark. So flip back in Mark's Gospel to chapter 10. This is where we'll drive home to a final conclusion. So we've already been quoting this several times, but this is where you really see the difference in the way of Jesus or the way of God and the way of man or the way of the world. Pick up in verse 42. Oh, quick preface. They're arguing over who's the greatest, the disciples. And James and John are asking for a power, powerful position in Jesus' coming campaign. And Jesus begins to correct them. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's talking about the way of man. And then he's going to contrast it. Verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He's laying out a philosophy. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And he talks about himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what theologians have called the way of Jesus. This mindset, this attitude, this philosophy, or the way of God. Jesus explicitly says to have an attitude of serving and sacrificing. That, that is the true way of life. Why? Because this is how God acts. And God determines what life is like. So many people try and live contrary to a servant and sacrificial 
and loving mindset, and they bang themselves up against the wall of reality. They just are out for me, 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 me. Those people are miserable. Why? Because God has designed this world like an architect to work in a certain way. It works the way God works. And the way it's supposed to work, you're either going upstream if you don't do this, is it works by serving. You will find fulfillment in life by pouring your life out into others and other things. Let's talk about it some more. This is how God acts. It's not to live with self-fulfillment in mind, but service. That one's daily mental occupation is not self-preservation, but self-giving. Quick tip, one to put in your pocket. When you walk into a room, walk into a situation, walk into a group of people, live by the question, not what can I get from them, rather what can I give to them. That's a Christ-like mindset expressed here in Mark 10. In my personal relationships, in my work duties, in my devotion to God, am I pouring out myself into these things or am I preserving myself from these? I got to be honest, I needed to hear this sermon when I was a college student, not to single you out. But man, I did not pour myself into those studies like I should have. And I, and I get it, y'all. There's some subjects like, why in the world do you need to take that? I didn't need two, two years of math. I don't use math ever. I have a calculator. But name the subject. There's this mindset. I'm going to pour myself into this. I need to be grateful that I'm here. I'm going to pour myself into this so I can be the wisest and most able person to, to graduate from here and to serve others through my vocation, through my family, whatever it may be. Parents of young children, you get this very well. You're constantly confronted with the uh, duty of service. Working people, you're constantly confronted, confronted with the duty of service. Now here's what I want to tell you. It is too easy to fall into the trap of planning one's life, thinking about it in the future, for simply self-accomplishments and self-satisfaction. It's just too easy to, to, to think that way. Everyone thinks that way. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to build things or accomplish things, but to do them unto God and unto people, not just unto yourself. You get the distinction. We live in what the philosophers today call the age of self, what I call a pandemic of hyper-individualism, that has only gotten worse over time. And I feel it clawing at my heart too. Sociologists are even now calling it something new. They're calling it crisis individualism. We'll talk about that. Crisis individualism. Here's how it works. Since 9-11, the Western world has been under crisis. A bit of history. Just think about it. Since 9-11. The Iraq and Afghan wars the lost sense of safety and security because of global terrorism. I remember the weekend after 9-11, there's all these on the news, all these terror alerts and all these different systems they had to tell you how dangerous it was to go out of your house. I remember we used to always feel safe because we're on this 
you know, continent that feels like an island away from all of the really crazy terrorism or wars that happen in the continent of Europe or Africa or the Middle East and losing that sense of security after 9-11. Or my dad, we were going to movie theater as like a 16-year-old. He said, just, just be aware around you. Just be aware. The Great Recession of 2008, by the way, this is not going to be a happy history. The Great Recession of 2008, when our entire, entire financial institutions collapsed. I remember watching the news. How many of you have seen the movie The Big Short? If you haven't, I'm trying to think, is there anything racy in there? I can't remember, but it tells you a lot about what happened. During that time, so many jobs were lost. Homes were taken. Retirement accounts were emptied out. And there was an overall state of panic and uncertainty. This what was going to happen next. Crisis. Crisis. Coupled with the terror of not only economic collapse, but a supposed ecological collapse that was coming. They say this, and they'll continue to say this, that it's, to quote the song, it's the end of the world as we know it. Climate catastrophe could happen at any moment. This is the environment we live in. And I've left a lot out, but to top it off, well, I got two more. The polarizing years of Trump and Biden, the race conflicts, the loss of trust in so many bedrock institutions like the FBI or news media or many others. And of course, the global pandemic that killed millions and terrified billions across the world. Two years, I mean, let's, let's really reflect on this. Two years of isolation and worry deeply formed all generations, but certainly the younger generations. And now people are living with a sense of crisis. What's going to happen next? And we start to fall into these mindsets that are very different than the mindsets we see in Christ and certainly different than the mindset we see in the hanging Christ being crucified. It's thoughts like this. I must protect myself. I must look out for myself. I don't have capacity to help others. I don't have time to commit to something. There's a great study on commitment in today's world. It's like gone. I don't have the emotional bandwidth to serve here or to serve there. These are the thoughts of today's time. Not only are we seeing a mental health crisis, we are seeing the basic ability to serve and commit to others and to duty vanish. This is why marriage and birth rates are declining at an alarming rate because both of those things take really serious commitment. This is why CEOs are having issues with employees because there's a difficulty in them being able to commit to their work and to their duty. And a lot of times we can stand here on our, you know, in our soapbox, like, ah, those Gen Zers, they can't commit to anything. Okay. Do not forget the time that they have been raised in. Is there some sin in their life, just like there's sin in my millennial generation and Gen X and Baby Boomer and so on? Of course. But don't forget the condition and the environment they were raised in. There's reasons. Doesn't dismiss it. Doesn't mean they need to grow out of it and repent. 
but it's real. Not only are we seeing a lack of commitment in basic things, we're seeing a lack of commitment in, in the church. Church attendance and volunteering is declining at alarming rates. Why? Here's why. Because people are turning inward. They're scared. They're in crisis. And, and most of us would never say, yeah, I'm scared. But at an unconscious level. This includes believers in the church. We're not immune to any of this. Again, Mark 10, 45 is what we're reflecting on right now. We can easily forego the way of Jesus, which has the faith and the courage to say no. No. I refuse to be a victim of this age and its selfishness. No. I will pick up the way of Christ. I will not give in. I will not check out. I will call on Christ and serve and sacrifice as he did. I will take up my cross and follow his way. This is what we need to preach to ourselves. This is what we need to pray for. This is what we need to ask the Spirit of God to render in us. I won't be a victim of this age. I will pour out myself into my family, into my work. Y'all, I feel it. I have an iPhone too. I feel the temptation to go to John time. Me time on the screen when my children are there. That doesn't mean you don't need to rest and take a break. But this, I don't need like 80 breaks a day. I'm talking about real life here from the cross of Christ. Pour out myself into my family. Pour out myself into my work. Pour out myself into some kind of ministry. Who who am I mentoring? Or who am I trying to be a witness to? Pour out myself into my church. I want to volunteer. I want to be a member. I want, I want to go all the way. I wrote this. I will deconstruct. This is the one thing you're allowed to deconstruct here at the church. You can ask questions, have doubts. We'll walk with you and all that. Here's the one thing you can de- deconstruct. That fatal philosophy of self-fulfillment at all costs. You can deconstruct that from your life. You say things like, I want to take up the life of the saints. You need to read biographies of the saints, what they call the saints. St. Augustine, St. Teresa of Avia. Read these lives that are removed from our time. They were sinful. They weren't perfect. But they lived in a way that's going to inspire you to take up the way of Jesus. I want the life of the saints, not the life of the celebrities. Not the classmate next to me that has a great Instagram profile. I will take up Jesus' philosophy of service that leads to eternal life in him. It is the only way that leads to truly being alive. I will serve. I will let that divine attitude saturate my daily consciousness. And year after year, by his grace, I will live, think, feel, and act more like him. I will emulate the godly older men and women that I've been privileged to be around in the faith. But here's how I want to end. You won't do this on your own. You need the Spirit of God and you need the people of God, His church. You won't do it on your own. 
You stop being a part of the local church community and you hide away with your family and watch church online or whatever it is you do, but you're not interacting with flesh and blood, the body of Christ, you won't be spurred on to be different like this. You'll just fall and default into what everyone else thinks and looks like. Christ died so that he could live in me and by his spirit play the role of servant from within me. My prayer is this. Christ, I can't be a loving husband all the time. Play the loving husband within me. The spirit of Christ is in you. You have the mind of Christ, it says in Scripture. Lord, play the hard-working pastor from within me this week. I can't do it on my own. I will fail. Galatians 2.20, this deep statement of Paul, talking about that Christ living from within you. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, not myself. I added that part. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. I want to pray today and every morning that Christ would make me into a true servant. He was the ultimate servant on the cross. And our church, that's supposed to be a center and center for the kingdom of God, that we would be that by living the way of Jesus and learning to serve others as he did. That this would become our collective lifestyle. But we need each other. And we need like-minded Christians to spur us on. And so be here. Be committed. And let's be a serving people. Amen?